Turn in your Bibles to Haggai chapter 2. You can find Daniel or Hosea. You're not far. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai. South of here on I-77 is a church sign, which you might have seen from the freeways you drive through Akron. And it says this, forget religion, find God. Have you seen this sign? Forget religion, find God. And it expresses this popular idea that forsakes all external forms of religious activity and requirements on your behavior in order to find a fulfilling and satisfying relationship with God, as though you know your relationship with God and any expectations for obedience are somehow separate. And I'm not trying to interpret everything that they mean by that, but it does express a very popular common idea that divides these things. I draw your attention to just a slogan uh, because this is something that people often espouse. It believes God and religion are separate. And if what we mean by religion, if we're separating this, if we say, forget external things and focus only on God, we'd probably have to call that what? We'd probably have to call it mysticism, right? Because that's probably coming apart from obedience to the Bible and faith in God's words. I don't want anything formalized. I don't want expectations placed on me. I just want, uh, maybe in a previous generation, you've heard it called, I'm a Jesus freak. Okay, I'm all about Jesus. I'm not about any of the moral requirements, anything like that. But perhaps you've seen this distinction made in the opposite direction. I believe this is much more common in a place like this, in a place like our church, among professing Christians, maybe that would come to a church like ours. And that would be this, forget God, keep religion. You ever seen that? What would we call that? That's hypocrisy. But we do this, don't we? We get it in our minds that if we do all the right things and we do all of the things that we want to do, God will bless us no matter what. We can have all the benefits without really following all the requirements. We try to obtain God's blessing while being complacent about loving obedience. We do this sometimes. Well, the truth is, a life without love for God is actually like rotting fruit that contaminates everything it touches. A life without love for God contaminates everything. In the days of Haggai the prophet, God had begun to bring his people back from exile. You remember Jerusalem is conquered by Nebuchadnezzar. They're 70 years out of the land of, uh, land of Israel. God is starting to bring people back in remarkable ways. All of a sudden, the king of Babylon, the king of Persia, decides he wants to give government funding to rebuild this, new, this city back in Jerusalem. Remarkable things are happening. God is bringing his people back from exile in order to establish them as a nation again, just like he promised he would. This is what most of the Old Testament is about, especially the end part of the Old Testament. And this is starting in Jerusalem, which exists today. Starts with the second temple, which does not exist today. God was beginning by 
bringing the temple back. He, he was going to have his people build it, build the, the city walls. That's what's going on in books like Ezra and Nehemiah, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. These are the prophets and priests and men who are dealing with this phase of Israel's history. But when the people arrived, they got caught up in temporal things. In the book of Haggai, the reason Haggai came and ministered to the people is because instead of building God's house, they built their houses. They didn't pay attention to what God wanted them to do. And maybe you'd say, well, they have to have shelter, don't they? Well, that's what they said. And God sent a prophet to confront them about it because their priorities were misplaced. And they came at the expense of obeying God. And it's not this idea that God is homeless. We call it the house of God. I mean, you know, we have all these phrases for the temple. It's not that God was homeless until they built him a house, and so he was bullying them or anything like that. It's that God wanted his people to value his presence with them. Because where did God meet with his people? He met at the temple. And when they didn't build the temple, it's like, we don't really care if God is here. We're going to bring our sacrifices. We're going to do all these things but we don't really care if God actually meets with us. You see how their religion is really hollowed out. There's no love for God there. He wanted them to prioritize his honor above all of their own needs and wants and fears. There's still political pressure against them. They're vulnerable. They don't have city walls. How are we going to build a temple? What's the point of building a temple if we can't defend ourselves? We need to do all of these other things. Well, here's this person intimidating us. This person's going to bring legislation against us. They had excuses and ones that make a lot of sense to us, don't they? But God says, I want you to make me, me, your priority and my honor. But they didn't. And so God disciplined them. That's really what's going on in Haggai chapter one and the beginning of Haggai chapter two. God is coming to the people in Jerusalem. It's in shambles. They've just barely started some of the work. And God says, you need to build my house. And they're fearful, but they obey. And then in the beginning of Haggai chapter two, just a couple weeks later, God comes to the people again through the mouth of the prophet Haggai and says, I'm going to encourage you. They felt overwhelmed by the task, but God knew what they needed. And so he encouraged them. He encouraged the leaders. He encouraged the people. He pointed them back to his word and said, I'm going to keep my promise. I brought you here. I'm going to keep you here. I will defend you. Trust me. And that helped them. And within a few weeks, even though it was overwhelming and discouraging, they were still obeying. But then in the span of just two months later, God again spoke through the prophet Haggai to the people in order to give them a lesson on consequences. What is one thing that children need to learn? They need to learn cause and effect. Mom said, that's hot. Don't touch. And I touched it. What happened? I burned my finger. Okay. Uh, if you get close to the edge, you're liable to fall off the edge. One thing my own father said a lot, and we learned a lot from it. He'll only do it once. Okay. You learn by consequences and God is giving the people a lesson in consequences. And he does this by interpreting his providence for them. I want you to see how that's going on in our text this morning. When we get there, God wants them to think and reflect on what things were like before they obeyed. If you would look in uh, Haggai chapter 2, verse 15, this is a key verse in our passage. God is speaking through Haggai and he says, but now do consider from this day onward before one stone was placed upon another in the temple of the Lord. So God is 
coming to the people, telling them to look back, think about what it was like before you started obeying. And God says, I was involved in your life and it wasn't pretty, but I want you to remember that so that you learn your lesson. God is teaching them a lesson on consequences. There's consequences for disobedience, like when you weren't building the temple. And there's consequences for obedience. There's blessing when you obey, when they started building the temple. And God does this as he helps them reflect on their experience. So let's read our text for this evening. Haggai chapter 2, starting in verse 10. You see this time marker. This is about two months after the last time, two months after they started working. On the 24th of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask now the priests for a ruling. If a man carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches bread with this fold, or cooked food, wine, oil, or any other food, will it become holy? And the priests answered, No. Then Haggai said, If one who is unclean from a corpse touches any of these. Will the latter become unclean? And the priest answered, it will become unclean. Then Haggai said, so is this people, and so is this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so is every work of their hands, and what they offer here is unclean. But now, do consider from this day onward, before one stone was placed on another in the temple of the Lord, From that time, when one came to a grain heap of 20 measures, there would be only 10. And when one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there would be only 20. I smote you and every work of your hands with blasting wind, mildew, and hail. Yet you did not come back to me, declares the Lord. Do consider from this day onward. From the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day when the temple of the Lord was founded, consider, is the seed still in the barn? Even including the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree, it has not borne fruit. Yet, from this day on, I will bless you. This is the word of the Lord. Maybe you'd ask yourself, What relevance does grain and wine and vats and temples and priests, what does that have to do with me? I think you can see how this applies to you as you ask, what is it like when you try to get God's blessing while not truly, fully obeying him? That's what the people were doing. And there's a way that God operated towards them that is really true for us today. What is it like when you forget God? and keep religion. God draws our attention this evening, I believe, to how disobedience paints your whole life in two ways. First, when you won't obey God from your heart, everything you do stinks of sin. What I'm talking about here, obedience from the heart, I'm talking about obeying in every way that you know God wants you to. Okay, I'm not talking about things that are beyond you, things that you don't realize you need to do yet. I'm talking about the things that you know you should do, but you won't do. The people knew they should build the temple, but they wouldn't. They were afraid. They had misplaced their values. Maybe they had even forgotten, but they were culpable. 
When you don't obey God, when you won't, that's the key word, when you will not obey God from your heart, everything you do stinks of sin. And I want you to see how God illustrates this with a principle from the law through the mouth of a priest. And what was a priest? This is the person who who explained the law to the people. They would come to the temple and the law would the, the priest would explain and teach them the law of God, Genesis through Deuteronomy. So God tells the prophet to ask the priest a question about the law. Look at verse 11. Ask now the priest for a ruling. If a man carries holy meat or consecrated meat, it's ritually pure, okay, in the fold of his garment and touches bread or food or wine or oil or any other food with that consecrated meat, Will that thing that was touched, will it become holy by that contact? And what's the answer? The priests know. It's an easy one. No. But then he asks a different question. If one who is unclean from a corpse, it was in the law of Israel that if a person touched a dead body, you know, Samson touched the corpse of a lion to take out the honey from it, and he was unclean, but he didn't tell people. So he was actually contaminated in the law of God, in the view of the law of God. But because he wasn't honest about it, no one knew that he was contaminating them. He had touched the dead body of a lion. It was in the law of Israel. If one who is unclean from a corpse touches any of these, any of these foods, will those foods, they couldn't become holy by contact, but can they become unclean by contact? What's the answer? Yes, it will become unclean. What's the point? Point is this, doing the right thing externally doesn't make your heart good. But doing the wrong thing externally does mean that your heart is bad. Do you get that? Just because you do all the right things on the outside doesn't mean you have a good heart. But when you do the wrong things on the outside, that means your heart is bad. Because out of your heart flows the issues of life. Impurity is contagious, you could say. Holiness is not. That's the lesson. Maybe in our day, you'd say it this way. A father who is healthy can't give his sick son his health, right? But a son who has pneumonia or whatever else, he can give that sickness to his father, can he? Sickness is contagious. Health is not. And then what's the application in the mouth of the prophet? Verse 14. So is this people, and so is this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so is every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. Doing the right thing on the outside doesn't mean that your heart is right. And that's what the people were trying to do. On the outside, they were still bringing sacrifices to the, the temple that didn't even exist. They were still bringing sacrifices but they didn't really love God enough to obey him. And what did Jesus say? If you love me, keep my commandments. They didn't love God. They weren't actually obeying him, but they were carrying on in the formal externals of religion. And you know what God says? I hate that. God hates what I call substitute obedience. What do I mean by substitute obedience? Well, when a father tells his son, okay, son, it's time to clean up so we can go to bed. Put that toy in your toy bin, and you as the son say, okay, dad, I'll pick up this toy. I'll put it in my bed so we can go to bed. 
What is that son doing? Is he actually obeying? No, he's substitute obeying. That's not obedience. That's self-will. It's a refusal to submit and do the will of someone else. But what does that look like for you and me? When God says, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, so that may minister grace unto the hearers. And you say, okay, I'll just stop talking to that person. I'll stop talking to him. I'll stop talking to her. That's not obedience. That's the appearance of obedience, but it's not really a heart to obey the Lord. It's not ministering grace to those who hear. When God says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, even as God in Christ has forgiven you. And you say, okay, I'll stop shouting at her now. Are you obeying the Lord? Is that actually a heart of love for the Lord and for others? Or is it just the appearance of it? When God says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, and he nourishes and cherishes her on the word. And you say, okay, God, I put my tithe in the offering box today. I hope my wife listened. Are you obeying God from your heart? In every case, and we could go on with others, if that's you, if that's your disposition, you haven't turned from your sin. You haven't actually done the will of God from your heart. You haven't corrected your ways. And like the people of Israel, you're trying to buy God off, and you can't. God will not be manipulated. It's your heart that's the problem. And you can't make your life clean if your heart's bad. See the issue? The truth is, There's never been such a thing as true worship for God that doesn't have a heart of love in it. If you don't love God, you can't worship God. It's just more sin. It's abominable to God. But then with this illustration from the law comes the application from the prophet very explicitly, and it's this. The repulsiveness of sin extends to your secular work and to your religious life. God makes this even more clear in verse 14, what I've already been saying. Haggai said, so is this people, the, the, the contamination of their filth, it extends to what? So is this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so is every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. Because this is their disposition towards me, not to love me and actually obey me, everything that they do is rotten. God is saying, even when they do the right things, it's like filthy rags to me. When you won't do what you know God wants you to do, it makes everything you do repulsive to him. This would be like, imagine that you didn't go to jail for this, but it would be like going to your company and embezzling millions of dollars and then showing up to work on Monday. Your, your own, the owner of the company found out for whatever reason you didn't go to jail but you know that the owner knows and the owner knows that you know that he knows and you show up to work on Monday and you plop down in the conference room and you say you're ready for the next marketing meeting and you want to advertise for the company and you pretend like everything is okay and that he should just overlook it. It's unthinkable. It's insanity. You've set up this roadblock with the owner that you haven't turned from. Why would he be pleased with any of the hard work you give him that day? You haven't turned from the millions of dollars that you embezzled from him. It's like trying to buy them off, trying to pass over something. It's repulsive. If you're hardworking and diligent and 
well-recognized for your upstanding business practices. But you refuse to be pure in your thoughts and your emotions towards your spouse. And God is confronting you about this. And you still won't turn from that sin. It doesn't matter to God what kind of testimony you think you have at work. Or it could be that you really throw yourself into your students and you pour into the ones that you're giving care to. And you really make a difference in their lives. But you refuse to give God the priority in your life that you know that he wants. It stinks. You're unclean. You won't obey him. You don't really love him if you don't obey him. Or maybe you come to church and you serve diligently and eagerly, maybe maybe in front of people, maybe behind the scenes, whatever it is. And in your mind, you're laying yourself out for God, but you refuse to submit to him in some way that you know you should. Some relationship, some calling he's placing on your life, some step you need to take towards someone. All of that good stuff that you do for God in public, it's contaminated because you won't obey like you know that he wants you to. The people of Israel were doing this and God is teaching them a lesson about this. Now that they've started to obey, he wants them to learn so that they don't go back. And although we might not think that being slow to conform to God's values doesn't matter that much, and that you can still have God's blessing if you're kind of on the fence about whether you're really going to be committed to his will, you can't manipulate God. That's what he's teaching them. You can't. He knows. He sees your heart. He knows when you're trying to appear to obey without really doing what you know he expects you to do. The rot of that kind of heart, it soils everything that you touch. That's the, that's the first lesson about a heart that knowingly resists full obedience to God. God is not pleased with it. That's the first lesson. But the second lesson tonight shows the consequences of this. And this comes in the second half of what we read. Not only when you won't obey God from your heart, not only does everything you do stink of sin, but also when you won't obey God from your heart, count on missing his blessing until you do. Count on it. Look at verse 15. But now do consider from this day onward before one stone was placed on another in the temple of the Lord. What was happening before you obeyed me, Israel? You came to something you expected to, you got 20 out of and all you got was 10. You came to the wine vat to get 50 measures. All you got was 20. This is like a 60, uh, I actually forget the math. You're, it's a major percentage of a shortfall here economically, right? And then God makes that explicit. I did this. I smote you, verse 17. And every work of your hands with blasting wind, mildew, and hail, yet you did not come back to me, declares the Lord. This was before they obeyed, and they were without God's blessing. And he's telling them, count on that happening again. When you face some kind of constant and unexpected shortfall, you should consider the carefulness of your obedience. You know, what's going on here for them in our terms? Their budget, their budget wasn't balanced. They couldn't figure out where the money was going. The normal laws of sowing and reaping, they constantly seem to be frustrated. 
They had certain expectations that their produce constantly fell short of. Even it seems after they had harvested it. Where is it going? Is somebody stealing it? You know what? Maybe somebody had stolen. But God was trying to get their attention. God is interpreting his providence for them. And we should take note of what's going on here. It's not by chance that this is happening. That's the title of a book on God's providence. Not by chance. Do you think there were times in their lives when they came and thought they were going to get 20 and they only found 10? Oh, bad luck. I'll come back tomorrow. Maybe we'll have better luck next time. That's the way that we think if we're not accustomed to looking for God's providence. And God makes it explicit. Not just shortfalls should get your attention, but other needs. When you face excessive loss, you should return in contrition to God if you need to. God says, I smote you and every work of your hands with blasting wind, mildew, and hail. Excessive heat, excessive moisture, natural disasters. God was destroying everything they were growing. And when it's listed like this, it might seem really obvious to us, but we need to get into their shoes. Did this seem so obvious to them that God was doing this? If you were a farmer, would it to you? Or would it just be because this is what the farmer's almanac predicted for this year? Or because the world is warming or whatever else you want to attribute it to? Are you willing to take it out of God's hands and put it in man's hands? These are very common. You know, a bunch of sunny days and drought. A lot of rainy days followed by mold. Okay, you know, I'd expect that. It's just a wet season. A hard weather season. We're not an agricultural society anymore. It's hard to get the mindset of how dependent farmers are on God for the weather. Really, how they're how dependent they are on the weather, whether or not they think they're dependent on God. And today we we can, you know, depending on how much you trust the weather, man, predict the weather, right? And we understand how weather comes and how wind and precipitation forms and all of these scientific things. And this all leads us to fail to give God credit for things that he takes credit for. God did these things to get their attention. And he still does. We're not farmers. What do we live in? The technological age, if you want to call it that. Your banking system collapses. You think God wants people's attention? Well, it was just a run on the bank. It was poor investing. It was bad planning. Are you going to pay attention to God? Our health systems get overrun. Well, it was their fault. It was this person's fault. It was funding here. It was funding there. If you watch the news, how many times does God get credit for sending a worldwide pandemic? Our government servers get hacked. Well, of course it was this country. We can always find a culprit. And maybe there are real people doing real wrong. I'm not saying that that's not what's happening. But are you giving God your attention? A tornado rips through town. But maybe it's more personal. Can I say this? Your computer crashes? It is frustrating. <laughs> Does that give you pause to say, okay, God, I, I need to give you my attention in some way. 
don't know what it is. Please open my eyes to it. Your car breaks down. My in-laws have a knack every time they come to Ohio. It's three trips in a row for getting a nail in their tire. Welcome to Ohio. Are you willing to give God attention? He's working by providence. Your washer floods, your dryer fritzes out. That should make you turn to God and at least consider. Of course, maybe you'd say, well, I'm not always in sin when I get a flat tire. Okay, I agree with that. That's not always what's happening. There's a number of reasons God might bring someone to something like that. And it might not have to do with disobedience. But don't forget that God brought it into your life. And then it might be because of sin. You should at least think about it. I heard someone say once, um, maybe it was J.C. Ryle, when you see God bring a trial into someone else's life, assume that it's for testing their faith. When God brings a trial in your life, assume it's discipline for sin. Okay, we need, we need a way to think about this where we're assuming the best about others and we're being gracious toward others. But we need a way to think about God's providence that is strict with ourselves and serious about giving God credit that he wants credit for. Just because you can find a cause for everything and blame a culprit for everything in our scientific digital age doesn't mean you shouldn't look to God when things go wrong. And I'm convinced that often in our country, we won't look to God because we can find a culprit. Sometimes God does prod us right where it hurts the most, right where we most want his blessing. Why were these people still bringing a lamb to the altar? That cost them something. Why were they doing this? They wanted God's blessing. They wanted the fruit of the land. So what did God do? God took the fruit of the land. But it's not his malice to do that. He's not, he's not a bully. He just wants your heart. He wants you to love him. And he knows that when you're just carrying on with all the externals and you're not obeying him, that that's a dangerous road for you. So finally, when you do start to obey God and you find your needs being met, you should humbly praise God for his faithfulness. Look at verse 18. Do consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the nine month, from the day when the temple of the Lord was founded, from the day of their obedience, consider. Is the seed still in the barn? Even including the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree, is it, it has not borne fruit. Yet from this day on, I will bless you. And to really understand what's going on here, you need to realize when God comes on the 24th day of the nine month, the ninth month, this is after they have done all of their planting, okay? So this would be like, springtime for us. The early rains are starting to come for them. It would actually be more like the December part of the year for them. But the early rains are starting to come. They have all the expectation. They just had a harvest. They know what the harvest was like, whether it was good or bad. And God is saying, are you ready for the next season? Do you trust me? Because you're obeying me, I will bless this crop. I will. I'll make it bring forth fruit. It hasn't borne fruit yet, yet from this day on, I will bless you. They've begun work on the temple. 
God wants them to know that this harvest is going to be a good one. It'll be different than last year when they weren't obeying, when they weren't building God's temple, when they didn't care about God's presence with them, when they didn't have integrity in worship before God. He's really just helping them reflect on this change of circumstance. Remember what it was like before? Know that now you've now that you've obeyed, you can take me at my word. Things are going to change. He's encouraging them to trust in him right as they set out to obey him. And the point is, God knows when your heart is set to obey him. God knows. He knows the exact day that you commit to do it. And you might not do it perfectly. Were there days when they were fearful, when they wanted to quit? Sure, there were. Are there days when we don't feel like obeying? Days when, surprise, surprise, we sin. Yes, of course there are. But when your heart is set to love God and to obey God, you don't just give up then. You repent of your sin and you return. And that's what God wants. That's what he wants. He wants your heart. And when that happens, you're no longer unclean in his eyes, impure. He's pleased with all of that right conduct at work, all of the effort that you're putting in at home, into your students, before your bosses. God recognizes that service to him because you have a heart of love for him. But until then, it's really just all about you, isn't it? I want religion so that I can get God's blessing. Forget God. Keep religion. God brings it right out into the open. A life without love for God really is like rotted fruit that contaminates everything it touches. But if we state the opposite positively, a heart of love for God is like a precious jewel that God prizes. That's what he wants. If you're in a place where you won't obey God, just know that all of the, the good things that you're doing, that doesn't, that doesn't make God pleased with you. He sees your disobedience. You've set up this idol right in front of your face. And even though you want to forget about it and pretend like it's not there, God sees it. And you can count on, as long as you won't obey, you can count on not having his blessing. But the moment you do, the moment you turn from that sin and you start obeying God in whatever way it is that he might want you to, you can count on his blessing. That's what God wants. He knows that when we go the way of our own sinful heart, it's the way of destruction. Really, what were they doing when they were kind of just starting down the front of this path? They were starting down the exact same path that they were on before they went into exile. And God didn't want that for them. God wanted them to worship out of new hearts of love for him. And that's what he wants for you too. So is there something that you know that God wants you to obey him about? Let me encourage you, return to the Lord. Maybe just read the book of Providence in your life and see how the Lord has been trying to get your attention to come back to him. And if you don't see that in your life, and I'm not trying to scare anybody or anything like this, but if you don't ever see God's discipline in your life, that should make you wonder. Because what does the Bible say? God disciplines those that he loves. 
He chastens every son that he receives. So if you find yourself and you know, you, you're a church, you know, you know, I'm going my own way and I'm getting away with it and I'm never meeting any opposition. God is never trying to rein me back in. You should ask the Lord to search your heart. You should be very careful to return to him. Anytime that we set about to read the book of Providence, I've used that phrase to try to understand what God is doing. It would help to have someone come and interpret it for us like God does, right? Our, our interpretation often stumbles, but may the Lord help us at least to give him attention when trouble comes so that we're not carrying on just contaminating everything we do because we won't obey. May the Lord help us to obey out of love for him. And it is a precious promise. It is a precious promise that he will help us. And we can ask him for that. And he will receive us if we ask for forgiveness. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for recording things like these for our instruction. I pray that you would give us instruction from it. Help us to be tender to your leading. Help us not to harden our hearts. Help us not to deceive ourselves. Lord, it's very clear in your word that those who love you obey you. And if we're in a place, if you have us in a place where we're in obedience to you in every way that we know how to be, we bless your name for that because that is a far cry from where we would be before you rescued us. But Lord, if there is someone here that knows that there's something that they should do that they have not been willing to do, I pray that you would trouble them in their conscience. But Lord, more importantly, bring them back to you. We want to see people restored and walking in the joy and fellowship of obedience to you. It is a wonderful place to be knowing the joy of your smile on our lives. And we want to walk in your will and uh, stay there. But Lord, we know that we are sinful and frail and easily deceived. Help us not to be self-deceived. Help us to walk in the light as you are in the light and to have confidence and full assurance in your will. We pray this in Christ's name.